Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben. Uh, today on the on the show, we've got uh, uh, Dr. Josie Collins from uh, the Tizard Center in the UK. Welcome to the show, Josie. Thank you. Before we get started, I just always like to do a, a quick uh, little land acknowledgement. So I'm uh, producing this podcast uh, on the lands of the Tlaman, Comox, Klahuth, and Homoko people, who were one people before um, uh, colonizers came over and separated them all into reserves. Um, they used to all live together as, as sort of one community. They became separate First Nations over the years. Um, I've... Uh, Usually when I do my land acknowledgements, I sort of share about the connections I'm trying to make with the Tulaman Fire Department, um, because uh, I've I mentioned before, I'm also a firefighter here on Sayayin, which is called in the in the, in the the Tulaman language, but uh, Texade Island is what it's called. It's named after a Spanish conqueror who actually never actually came to Texada. He just kind of sailed by and someone said, eh, let's call it Texada. Um, but uh, Sayayin is the uh, uh, indigenous name, which um, um, uh, which <laughs> the name escapes me what it means. I, I, I knew before, um, um, but essentially it's a, it refers to a land on the sea in some way. I know I'm butchering that. Um, and it's apt that today we're going to be talking about uh, topics, including fire setting. Um but uh, yeah, in terms of the work we're doing with the Tlaman folk, um, we're moving a little bit closer to developing some joint harm reduction uh, programs between our island and the Tlaman First Nation, as well as um, um, kind of this uh, transition transition house for for uh, for women um, and children um, that's over in the, on the mainland um, we're trying to come up with some collaborative ways of uh, of connecting folks that are in need um, especially when we're doing like kind of first responder calls and whatnot and we come up families that are you know domestic issues and often some really you know sensitive sorts of things and we're on an island we have no access to resources and whatever and so Talaman has been really helpful and kind of helping us with creative ways to sort of provide support. So I'm enjoying continuing that relationship. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm just uh, grateful, grateful to be here. And I'm grateful to the Dr. Collins for, for coming on the show. So once again, thanks for being here. Um, most of the guests I've had on this, on, on, on the podcast have either been kind of behavior scientists or, um autistic folk um because we're trying to sort of try to get more kind of perspectives of of our consumers as well as the professionals but i've really been trying to kind of branch out some more into areas that i think are applicable to us but maybe our field doesn't have the you know the currently have the treatments i don't i you know i meant to do a bit of a, a bit of a, a literature search to see if there is any kind of behavior analytic interventions related to fire setting and I haven't got there. So certainly if folks are familiar with that and want to reach out and share some with me, that's great. I don't know of any off off the top of my head, but I haven't really looked that hard. Um, I have looked at sort of, there is some research around kind of safety and fire safety 
I know Dr. Ray Miltonberger in Florida has done a lot of really cool research around. Uh, uh, I think he's done like he's done fire safety. He's done gun safety. He's done um, some really neat studies. Actually, uh, uh, you might be interested in this, Dr. Collins or Josie. Sorry, mm-hmm. um, that yes. uh, that uh, uh, some really interesting and um, sort of in situ kind of research on abuse, where he's actually been able to put Confederates um, into like. I don't know how he gets past ethics ethics boards, but he puts Confederates into like um, sort of residential settings with adults with developmental disabilities and has okay. and have them kind of do like um, essentially you know luring kind of behaviors with the individuals, and then we and then teaches the individuals how to respond to those behaviors to sort of avoid abuse. Because um, mm-hmm. I think one thing we know is is with sort of abuse intervention, it's really hard to sort of measure outcomes because you can't really test these things out, you know, ethically. Um, but he's yeah. been able to somehow, um, um, you know, find that fine line of, uh, of, uh, of actually testing whether some of these interventions work, which is really interesting. And I think he's also done a little bit around fire safety, but I don't know if anyone's done anything around fire setting. So I'm looking forward to digging into that. Uh, I also really like that Josie does work in... Um, in, in forensic settings and my the company that I work for has a contract with um, uh, our, our local forensic psychiatric hospital and it's um you know it's um sometimes a tough go um, and uh, we're going to talk about a paper that uh, uh, that Josie wrote with a couple other folks um, that reinforces how tough a go that is um, and how hard it is to kind of implement these things in forensic settings, but still really cool that uh, folks are trying to do that. Um, so yeah, so that's the plan for today. A little bit on forensics, a little bit on fire setting, maybe a little bit on abuse. Um, and uh, it's wonderful that uh, Josie's doing work in all these areas. I think really can complement a lot of the stuff we're doing. And if anything, maybe maybe some of these strategies will be out of the scope of a behavior analyst, but at least maybe it can prov- start to provide a direction for referrals and whatnot too. If things kind of we kind of don't know where to send these folks um, and certainly if other mm-hmm. folks are listening out there because I do I think we do have psychologists and other folks from other professions listening out there so they might find this of interest before we got to get into sure. all all the great work you're doing maybe you could just tell us a little bit about sort of how you got into in, into this field so sort of from the beginning I'm, I'm thinking you know undergrad on like how, how, how'd you come to sort of do what you're doing now Yeah, sure. So I guess um, growing up, I was always interested in crime and why people um, commit certain crimes and kind of the more um, violent crimes like murder. I found really interesting, you know, watching kind of horror films and thrillers, psychological thrillers. um, And that kind of prompted my interest into psychology Mm. and more specifically forensic psychology. Um, so I kind of pursued that at undergrad and postgrad master's level and then got a job, um, kind of did some volunteer work within prisons and got a job um, within the prison service um, and then moved over to um, secure services. So psychiatric hospitals, um, inpatient services for offenders with mental health problems um, and people with intellectual disabilities as well. So if... Um, you know, a person with intellectual disabilities, as I'm sure you know, commits a crime, they might not always be um, kind of prosecuted through the criminal justice system in the same way as someone without an intellectual disability. Um, So they'll be diverted away from kind of prison services into more secure hospitals where they can receive treatment and um, 
you know, the care that they need. So, um, yeah, worked within those services as an assistant psychologist for a while. Um, and that was where I first kind of met people um, that had committed a crime who had an intellectual disability and mm. autistic people who had kind of been involved in the criminal justice system as offenders and as suspects, but also as victims as well, actually. Mm. Um, and, yeah, so met some people who had set fires, um, but wanted to... I kind of realised working with these individuals how little we know mm -hmm. in terms of assessment and treatment. So that kind of sparked my interest in research and wanting to kind of make a difference in that respect mm. um, and to kind of learn more about these individuals. So um, moved over to the Tizard Centre um, in Kent who specialise in research with people with intellectual disabilities mm. and autistic people um, across kind of a range of settings so within education within you know forensic settings within the community so kind of quite broad right. um did some research as a research assistant and then pursued my phd where i specialized in fire setting behavior and 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 the tizard center just uh touching on that for a second um because i know i've been familiar with tizard for a lot of years just uh you know came upon it uh i'm not really sure how uh when i was maybe just doing some research for my thesis eight or ten years ago and um and you know and discovered you know works of uh, you know folks like uh, uh dr manzel um uh, who i believe did, did he sort of found the tizard center is that right yeah yeah and then um and then and then he passed away um sadly and um uh, and he and, and for folks who are familiar with him he's he he was a, a real architect, I think, in the UK around sort of uh, deinstitutionalization and you know getting folks um, you know out, out of the big the big the big the big buildings and into the smaller ones, as it were, um, and into community and whatnot. Uh, and then um, I think at some point was 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 Doctor Hastings connected to Tizard ever or or um, we do collaborate with yeah. Doctor Hastings. Um, quite a bit. I'm not sure historically whether he was part right, of the right. centre, but we definitely collaborate. Anyway, he was. Um, yeah, he was another name that Richard. kind of came up early, early in in early days. But then Tizard um, started discovering some other other names that were doing some re some really interesting research um, over there, like um, Doctor Beetle Brown, um, uh, Doctor Big B, uh, who we had actually had on the podcast already. Um, uh, and uh, looking forward to releasing that around kind of group home culture and, and that kind of research that she's been doing. Um, and just there's some really neat stuff that that's kind of come, that's been coming out of the UK for a lot of years that I don't know that um, uh, folks on sort of our side of the pond are familiar with. And uh, so I just highly recommend folks check out Tizard. I'll put a link in the show notes to Tizard um, just to kind of learn some more. Folks will be familiar with Tizard if they're and I, I, for, 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 forgive me, Mister V. I, I can't pronounce your last name today, but um, um, the the wonderful uh, uh, Greek precision teaching expert uh, out at Tizard, um, uh, whose first name is Thanos. Um, uh, I want to say it's kind of like Vastonis. I'm, I'm butchering that, I'm, but it's something to that effect. Uh, forgive me, forgive me, Thanos, for pronouncing it incorrectly. But a wonderful man, um, and he does. Um, he's been doing these monthly article journal club shares, and where he's invited a lot of uh, folks from kind of our side of the world, um, as well as your side, um, 
uh, who have written some fantastic articles in all areas of kind of behavior analysis. And um, but I think he's done a really good job of getting that Tizard name known to more folks. But there's a lot of I think what's interesting is Tizard isn't you know has a range of different sort of uh, sort of research areas and professions, and so they do have a kind of a, 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 a BACB sort of behavior analyst certification board kind of track program that that I know Thanos is a part of. Um, but then there's also folks doing lots of other things, like yourself. Um, you're you're not a behavior analyst, um, but uh, you're you're doing work. Uh, it, it's 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 intellectual disability focused versus just sort of you know. Uh, uh, behavior analysis focused and there's also another term that you folks use in the uk that i think is just important just to mention quickly uh, as folks are maybe wanting to do research and learn some more you folks often refer to folks with intellectual disabilities as folks with learning disabilities we do yeah i tend to use intellectual disabilities because i know that kind of um globally that's more recognized but um yeah within services um, we'll refer to people as having learning disability. Yeah. One of the early names... But we, we use the term interchangeably. Right. So. <laughs> and so, of course, for us, learning disabilities are more, you know, things like dyslexia and dyscalculia and, 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 sort of, and, you know, sort of those sorts of things and not necessarily related to, you know, um, IQ, which maybe is a poor measure anyway. But, um, um, but the the my early introduction i think to the uk was through um a guy named uh, jonathan Beebe, um mm-hmm. who is uh he's i think he owns a pbs company in there but he was a psychiatric nurse um over there and it's interesting that psychiatric nurses got into aba over there and and they were one of the early kind of practitioners of aba and it's an, just an interesting connection because we know psychiatric nurses work a lot in these kind of institutional and forensic kind of settings. And so to see them becoming certified in positive behavior support and those sorts of things um, is kind of cool because they've got kind of both sides of the, of, of, of sort of, of you know, different perspectives that they can kind of bring to it. Um, but, uh, but he was always referring to folks with learning disabilities and it took me a while to kind of make the connection that um, this wasn't just all people with, um, you know, dyslexia and whatnot um yeah we people with so we actually call people with like dyslexia and dyspraxia learning difficulties Mm, there you go so if you hear that yeah 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 that makes sense Uh, um but it's just interesting sort of the the different changes in terms um and um uh, kind of going from place to place so just again for folks that are doing maybe their literature searches including learning disabilities, you know, in your, in your search terms may, may, uh, may bring out more things. Also spelling behavior correctly may also bring you some more uh, good information because I know we in Canada and you folks in the UK have added the wonderful you to the word behavior and made it a much better term. (laughs) I have a, I have a few, I have a few arguments with folks around the world around the spelling of behavior and, it's mostly in jest, but uh, it's fun. So, um, so th- th- there were kind of three areas that uh, that I, I kind of wanted to talk talk about today with you. Um, you did, um, maybe we'll we'll start with um, um, the the article that you did on uh, on 
uh, it's called managing challenging behavior using applied behavior analysis and positive behavior support in forensic settings. Which again, mm-hmm. Josie is not a a behavior analyst, but um, but she wrote an article on ABA and positive behavior support. So maybe you can start by telling us why you wrote an article on ABA and positive behavior support if that's sort of not your area. Yeah, so um, when I was working within Secure Services, um, although I'm not a behavior analyst, analyst, we did use positive behavioral support um, with our service users. Mm. And that was really the role of psychology. Um, mm. As an assistant psychologist, I'd kind of collaborate with the multidisciplinary team and mm. with the service user to develop a positive behavioral support plan, mm. you know, conduct a version of a functional analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I was kind of interested in positive behavioral support. Mm. Um, but I knew, you know, we knew very little and we know very little about the use of it within forensic settings. Mm-hmm. So um, when I moved over to the Tizar Centre, I had the opportunity to work with um, Peter Baker um, and Magalie Barnu around mm-hmm. positive behaviour support. And we did a systematic review on, you know, what evidence is out there in terms of its use within forensic services. Mm-hmm. And, you know, are there any what we really wanted to know was what are the challenges to kind of using positive behavioural support in forensic settings? Because it's, you know, there are restrictions in forensic settings, which you sometimes can't avoid, Mm -hmm. even if you're trying to be, you know, work to be least restrictive. Mm -hmm. The Ministry of Justice will implement things like kind of community leave. If a service user hasn't got community leave, you've got to work around that when Mm -hmm. implementing positive behavioural support. Um, or, you know, access to activities or things like that. So, um, yeah, so was really interested to know what the literature was telling us about how people have implemented um, PBS within forensic settings. So that's cool. And I thought it was interesting from your review. I mean, you, you went through a lot of articles and I think you came down to um, around 29 or 30 that, um, that met your inclusion criteria. Um, mm. uh, and I didn't even realize maybe that there were that many articles um, on this topic. Um, but then kind of after reading through, through it, I, I see that a lot of those are are those articles that were kind of written back in the 70s and 80s, um, sort of the, some of the early ABA research that because I think a lot mm-hmm. of that was done in these in these. I don't know. If, I don't think I don't, I don't know if it was actually a forensic settings per se but more so, you know, institutions. So uh, yes, these, yeah. these these places that we've talked about, the deinstitutionalization, deinstitutionalization um, these were the places that, you know, essentially they house folks with intellectual disabilities since, you know, the 1700s or 1800s. Um, and there's examples of those all, all over the world. Um, and so a lot of those studies were in the 70s and 80s and they were in, in kind of that hospital setting and, and, uh, but it was what was what I really found interesting from your review, and it really tells me I need to kind of go back and look at some of those articles. I didn't realize that a lot of the goals of those studies weren't actually, you know, for the for the benefit of the consumer or the client. They were more, you know, to make the staff's lives easier. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would say that definitely for the more historical articles. Yeah. Yeah. It was about making the staff, yeah, making things more manageable, kind of easing pressure on staff. And so that, and, and again, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent here, as I tend to do, but that feeds a lot into, and, and, and maybe a discussion we'll have with, with maybe someone on, uh, over here that, you know, that has maybe more connection to those articles, but 
that feeds a lot into this area of reform that we keep talking about in our field. So behavior analysis is going through a, a bit of a, a bit of a, a paradigm shift of sorts, um, um, where essentially, you know, and I've, I've said this spiel a few times on episodes, but essentially the George Floyd murder murders, and I know this is, seems like a digression, but the George Floyd murders obviously led to a lot of, a lot of folks in the world, um, um, myself included, um, starting to recognize some of these implicit biases that we had and, and, you know, and how racism sort of affects every part of our lives, um, you know, and, and you don't have to be wearing a white coat to be a racist. Um, um, and in fact, you know, uh, you know, I admittedly, I think for many years was a racist, um, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I had good intentions behind things. Point being, we, we started kind of learning about that. What that also did was open the door, I think, for other kind of social justice movements um, to start getting recognized more. And one in particular has been this neurodiversity movement. And there's been a lot of conversation about the neurodiversity movement, um, you know, yeah. and some some folks who support it, some folks who find it problematic. Um, and what that's led to is essentially a lack of What's, what that's come down to is that ABA for a lot of years has seemed to have lacked sort of the input of the consumer um, and the values of the consumer um, on some level. Um, and so, and so, and there's been a lot of discussion and I won't sort of get into sort of, you know, all the different examples of that. Um, there's several other episodes, which I'm happy to link or folks can check out and, and hear about that. But what I didn't realize, and but there's also a reference to the 70s and 80s as being sort of the sketchy time for ABA. Um, uh, mm. There was one particular article, for example, that a, a couple of folks put out uh, where they tried to essentially use uh, behavior analytic uh, uh, procedures to essentially try to convert uh, uh, a young gay boy into a straight boy. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the early 70s. And uh, that's that's sort of been one of the big sort of quoted articles as being really problematic in our history and moves to kind of get this, this study retracted and so on and so forth. Um, and then references to studies that used a lot of sort of punishment procedures and different things and whatnot um, yeah. in the 70s and 80s. But what I didn't know um, until just reading your review is that is this point about how the focus was on the staff and not on on those individuals. And that really speaks to another kind of area of reform that I think is really important that we're trying to sort of kind of get back to right now. So I just, I just, I was just really cool to kind of learn that fact from, from, from your study and, and kind of get that perspective. Yeah, definitely. But even with the more recent research where, um, you know, services have tried to implement positive behavioral support, Mm -hmm. even then the research is really lacking on what the experiences of service users are. So we still need more research, you know, within the more kind of updated Mm. stuff that's going on around actually what are these, yeah, what are the experiences of the service user? Yeah, yeah. The other question I have, and and I think this this is in your study and and maybe you can elaborate on, is so those studies in the seventies and eighties were were not positive behavior support. I mean, the the concept of positive behavior support, I think, was just being kind of conceived later in that period, and really didn't kind of come into play until until the nineties, really. Uh, um, and it was sort of a move away from you know restrictive and aversive practices and the use of punishment, the use of restraint, and so on and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. 
Um, I'm curious what, what the, so the idea, so the idea of ABA maybe being used in a forensic setting doesn't seem that strange to me, but the idea of people using PBS in forensic settings, um, seems strange to me, like in, in the sense that I, 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 I wouldn't have thought that forensic settings would, would, would even want to go there um, and consider sort of that route because it's a completely, you know, as far as sort of society goes, if you look at sort of someone who goes to prison, you know, they expect for, you know, for, you know, a major crime, they expect that person to be punished and to suffer or whatever, and, you know, not be rehabilitated and not learn or whatever. Um, and, 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 and who cares about their behavior, you know, just put them in solitary or whatever, you know, this seems to be the perspective I, I'm talking of sort of the, the community members' perspective, not necessarily the the professionals or what what maybe is actually happening in those places. Well, what led to kind of PBS actually being practiced in those settings, at least on, on, on your side of the world? Yeah, and I think, like you said, it it was a move to more um, kind of a least restrictive practice, a move to wanting to transition into more community-based services and move people out of big institutions Mm -hmm. and the only way to do that you know we we put people in big institutions we use punishment as a model and um maybe they weren't very rehab you know we weren't doing rehabilitation we Mm -hmm. weren't doing treatments um and that didn't work people weren't moving back into the community they were getting stuck within services Mm -hmm. for a very long time so something needed to change in order to get people to transition from institutions to the community and I think positive behavioral support is a way to do that in a person-centered way Mm -hmm. um it's you know it's about understanding that person's behavior um and understanding the functions of their behavior Mm -hmm. and how yeah how we can intervene at a much earlier point in order to prevent kind of more challenging aggressive violent behavior in you know forensic settings so that makes sense to me, and, and th- I mean that's a similar story over here, but I, I think it's it's the forensic setting piece that I'm still wondering about because mm. over here we've closed most of our institutions. Most they say there's still a couple around, um, but for the most part they're closed. But we do still have forensic hospitals, so the places mm-hmm. where folks who are you know, and I don't know what the legal term is, but essentially you know, not criminally responsible or mentally incapacitated incapable or whatever the term they use basically saying they they didn't they don't have the wherewithal to have the intent you know or or to or to you know uh, for that crime that there's some sort of you know mental illness or disability that that you know that basically played a role and so instead of going to prisons they end up in these in these kind of psychiatric hospitals um which are which are still operating today and there's lots of places have them i'm sure and you folks have them those places, I'm surprised. I'm surprised that those places would want to use start using PBS. Um, was there any reason, or maybe legal change, or something that sort of led folks to start going that direction? Yeah, well, I guess it. It's so within so within the inpatient services within the hospitals mm. of people with intellectual disabilities that have been involved in crime and offending type behavior mm. the model is rehabilitation and treatment mm. care and treatment it's not we don't we're not kind of advocating for a model of punishment right um so yeah the the whole purpose is to um 
you know, treat people and have them reintegrate back into the community. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, that's really the kind of the kind of aims behind it. And I guess it's come from, you know, where we've had um, transforming care, where we're trying to kind of we've developed guidelines and policies like building the right support for people with intellectual disabilities and guidance around that. And, you know, legislation around transforming care Mm. and trying to move people out of in you know secure friend even forensic services um you know often sometimes people with intellectual disabilities are in forensic services not because they have a criminal conviction but because they've had challenging behavior that has been a risk to either themselves or Mm. others so it might not be that they've actually been convicted of a crime Mm. but they are deemed too risky to be in the community Mm -hmm. um and, you know, you can't, even people that have committed a crime, you can't keep them in, within a service mm. forever. And, you know, if you're in a prison, you have a release date. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. you know, no matter what treatment you've received, you'll get released by that point. Mm. So, um, you know, it's not fair to keep people with intellectual disabilities within services for, um, you know, an indefinite amount of time. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, yeah, the goal is to you know have people reintegrate back into the community and positive behavioral support something that you can start with in a forensic setting Mm. and you can do you can implement certain degrees of it um all right you might not be able to implement things that you would be able to in the community but then upon release from a secure service you would hope that the community would continue that positive behavioral support plan um and continue that within the community and build on that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so from the from this review, did, um, is that what seems to happen? Or like, does it work, or, or or what did you kind of find out about PBS in those settings? So actually, it was there was some really positive outcomes mm. in terms of people wanting to implement PBS, oh, good. Um, and it was it created an, an environment that was more person centered. Um, and it created an environment where the service user was more involved in their care plan. Um, and it was more individualized to, you know, their their interests, their goals, their aspirations. But there were barriers to implementing it as well. Um, and some of that was around staff training. You know, as you as you said, there aren't not every service will have a um, BCBA um, and not every service will, you know, provide lots and lots of training around how to conduct functional analysis, how to write a PBS plan. So there were. Yeah, there are there is elements of within the results that came out around staff needing more training around actually how do we do PBS properly. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is abuse. Overall, um, it it sounds like PBS can work in those settings, but there's some barriers, maybe? Yeah, I think so. And there's some limitations to PBS within forensic settings. Mm. But um, I think the positives, you know, if it's implemented properly and it's uh, kind of systemically um, and you've got support from leadership, um, and from higher up and it's not just down to kind of support workers yeah. to to kind of implement and it's kind of a strategic approach i think it can have a really positive impact on service users mm. but it's got to be done properly and with you know s- staff have got to be trained yeah 
This is a bit of a rhetorical question because I don't think you know the answer because we're talking about syrup over here compared to over there. At least, at least in my experience, and and maybe my American counterparts have 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 had different experiences, but we I don't see a lot. Of, we don't see PBS happening in our forensic hospitals. Um, and in fact, there seems to be, um, you know, a lot of resistance to that. Uh, we do have, uh, and in fact, even my own company, uh, we have uh, behavior analysts that work with the forensic hospitals to help transition folks out of there and do that sort of piece in the community. But the hospitals themselves don't have anyone that are kind of trained in, in, in PBS or behavior analysis kind of doing that work. And, there's, I shouldn't say there. There's one actually. There is one now locally that has started to kind of move that direction. So maybe 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 the change is starting, but I'm curious. I'm wondering if it's and and again this might just be rhetorical, but I'm wondering if it's because in the UK, it's not just behavior analysts that are using PBS, and that it's psychologists and other folks that maybe weren't trained with that ABA sort of you know foundation but they're still practicing positive behavior support. I think that's similar over in Australia and New Zealand as well, where there's folks practicing PBS that may not necessarily have come from an, an ABA background. Do you think that's why? Is that because those, those, those settings have psychologists in them, like yourself, who are familiar with this, these, this idea of PBS and have brought that into those settings? Um. Yeah, I think so, partly. Mm. Um. And I think it's, you know, within services within the UK it's more of a approach that whereby all staff are involved in PBS mm. so it might be led by psychology mm. in some services but actually you know I particularly when I was involved in PBS it was all about involving the support workers the nurses mm -hmm. the you know the service user and getting as many people involved as possible um you know getting the support workers and the the people based on the ward to be doing mm -hmm. the behavioral observations because they're the ones that mm -hmm. you know are with mm -hmm. service users all of the time so um yeah i think um i think potentially that that could be that could be a reason why it's more widely used i think where we're, what, what i'm trying to figure out is and again i'm not expecting you to have the answer but um is everything you're saying that that's what pbs is all about it's all about the collaborative approach it's all about you know working with the with so with the staff, with the managers, with everyone right down in the front line and really getting that buy-in so everyone really sees the value in it and that person-centered approach. But someone's got to start it. Someone's got to yeah. first say, we're going to do PBS here. And there's nobody in the forensic hospitals that I'm familiar with that would do that. And so it's always external folks that are kind of recommending it. And so I guess what I'm wondering is how... And you kind of alluded to this a bit in your introduction to kind of getting into this, but it's it just seems like it's different in that, at least in the UK anyway, that psychologists or some of them are have some training or knowledge of PBS, but they're not coming from that ABA background. And I think over here we've, because we know that PBS and ABA are, are are often one and the same and they and, and and certainly built upon each other and really PBS is just sort of takes ABA and adds that person center planning piece some more preventative stuff some more sort of um, you know um, uh, maybe wraparound services and you know just a, a lot more kind of uh, you know uh, collaborative kind of features um, uh, but yet 
I, I, I feel like over on, on my side of the world, it's a bit um, taboo, I think, to practice PBS without having an ABA background, without being a board certified behavior analyst or whatever. Um, and in fact, it's often considered to be out of people's scope to be going there. Um, yeah, that doesn't seem to be the case over in the UK. No, and I guess, you know, that might be partly because there's a real push in terms of um, the NHS and the Care Quality Commission that we have here mm. um, in them wanting to see that happening within services to, it, and it links to transforming care and, you know, the push to get people out of in, inpatient services. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if a service says that they're doing positive behavioural support, it you know, it, they appear to be quite person-centred um, and they they appear to be kind of moving in the right direction. So it's looked quite positively upon during like inspections and things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And I also kind of read um, in the article that I think a, a lot of this sort of move towards, you know, PBS and whatnot has come out of, um, a, as a result of some abuse allegations or, or, or not maybe not allegations, abuse scenarios where, you know, essentially where folks with intellectual disabilities are being abused um, in, mm. in, in these places. And there's a place, um, and maybe just you could just briefly share, because there's a place that I've heard lots about um, um, in, in sort of different aspects, but um, I don't actually know exactly what happened. Um, there's a place in the UK um, called Winterbourne, or Winterbourne View, maybe. Um, and it, it, was that essentially one of these institutions? Or was that a... Yeah, a, yeah. so there's been a few. So there was Winterbourne View in 2011, I think it was. There's been Since then, we've had Walton Hall, which you might have heard mm. of, um, which oh, is yes. sim a cl similar scenario. Um, and basically, that yeah, the, the in caring institutions, inst quite large institutions for adults with intellectual disabilities, um, and they, yeah, people stayed there a long time. Um, and the kind of Panorama TV program went in undercover. Mm. Um, someone went in undercover with a recording device, pretended to be a member of, well, they were a member of staff, um, and yeah, worked there for a while and recorded a lot of abusive practice, basically. Uh. Uh, and then that that got aired on TV um, and led to kind of a scandal of, of, of abuse and you know lots of uh other kind of allegations of abuse coming up as well after that actually um but kind of significantly that that aired and it was invested you know it's invested winterborne view was investigated walton hall has been investigated and there were from you know those investigations it became apparent that there were things that led up to um, the abuse happening there were you know things where people had been whistleblowing for quite some time allegations had been made um, so there were indications that this was happening but it, it continued to kind of slip through the net and not be not not get detected mm -hmm, for quite some mm -hmm. time um, and you know quite significant in that it wasn't just one member of staff it appeared to be kind of a culture within the service um, and yeah this is these kind of scandals are what really instigated um, some new legislation and guidance around um, how people with intellectual disabilities should be cared for yeah, and the environment that they should be in. And just looking at, you said 2011 for Winterborne View and then a few years later for Wharton Hall. So were these places open then? Like these were places that were still running in the 2010s? 
Yeah, so there are private hospitals. Mm. We still have private hospitals mm. um, today. Um, you know, they're, uh, yeah, they are They are still open. More so now, they're small, obviously, there are smaller um, mm. kind of residential services, but there are still larger hospitals open. And quite often, people with intellectual disabilities get housed in, in quite historical buildings um, mm. where the layout and the environment kind of, Perpetu- not perpetuates but kind of feeds an environment that is that is quite abusive anyway mm-hmm. um and makes abuse more easier to kind of perpetuate if you're if you're an offender yeah abusing service users so yeah and they, they some private hospitals that are quite large still exist um and some are still getting funded to be built as well to house a lot of people so it's still an issue that continues to mm-hmm. kind of well, I think that's a good a good segue into this other paper that you that you did, which was uh, uh, basically was it kind of a re- review on abuse of individuals with intellectual disabilities. Can you tell us a little bit about about that study and kind of kind of why you did it and what you came up with? Yeah, so this was um, we wanted to do kind of a review of the literature of all the literature that we know about abusive practice and detection and prevention of abuse of people with intellectual disabilities within services and kind of summarize what we know about how abuse is getting detected and how uh, you know what are the risk factors for abuse um and with the view to kind of share with you know practitioners with professionals with you know families with individuals with or uh, autistic individuals and individuals with intellectual disabilities the kind of risk factors and protective factors um, for abuse and how we need to move forward in terms of our research in trying to prevent this from happening in the future. Because, you know, we're 10 years later, these scandals are still coming to light, mm-hmm. um, which suggests we need to do more, really. Yeah, and so what were, I mean, I think you, you and I, we'll, we'll be linking all these articles um, and, and you... You go through essentially, which is cool. You, you go through a lot of different risk factors. So, I mean, I think we're familiar with um, you know some of the the obvious risk factors right now, and you know, folks generally it, it tends to be men that are the perpetrators. Generally, it tends to be females who are on the receiving end. I think when we're talking about you know physical and maybe sexual abuse, certainly neglect and financial abuse probably falls along you know. Um, a, a, a different range of folks, um, more severe intellectual disabilities. Obviously, I mean that's they they you become a much easier target when you don't have communication ability to communicate or or um, or or you know sort of those pieces in place. Um, yeah. Certainly, challenging behavior. Folks engage, and this is something we see around the world. Folks engage in severe challenging behavior. We don't have the right right sort of you know training in place and in order even just to protect themselves folks are you know often engaging in abusive behaviors towards these individuals uh, you know hitting back or you know or, or really unsafe restraints um but on their side of the coin also you know bullying behavior and whatnot and then i think um but then you go on to kind of um talk about what perpetrators look like. And I thought, I mean, the male piece, a history of being a perpetrator made sense. Um, sort of the inability to cope with st- stresses and whatnot made, made a lot of sense. 
staff perceptions of service users made made a lot of sense, but also just kind of reminds me of sort of stigma. And there's some really interesting research on stigma now coming out on kind of how we, you know, how we, you know, kind of look at folks. And I actually have an, an, an interesting episode coming out with a guy named Rocco Catrone who, inter, who did an article on, on, on essentially capability of individuals and perceived capability of individuals, that kind of stigma piece, which is really interesting. But what I thought was most interesting of, of those was was that it was newer staff that were kind of kind of more likely to engage in abuse. And, you know, and sort of from my experience of, you know, I spent a lot of years kind of working in and running group homes and whatnot before I became a behavior analyst. And, you know, it seemed to be, you know, that the new staff were the ones, you know, that were, you know, you know more modern and progressive and, you know, had really positive ideas and seemed to really kind of mesh well with folks. Um, so I thought that was interesting that, that was, was there any sort of reasoning why newer staff versus longer term staff are more likely that you, you, you found at all? No, and I wouldn't be convinced by those findings either. Mm. I was kind of, I think, yeah, there are other factors in play, particularly for that study. Mm. And I think, yeah, more research needs to be done in terms of what were the other factors going right. on for that service. Because there's stuff around, you know, staff turnover yes. um, and poor recruitment strategies, actually, right. that, you know, it might not be the fact that they're newer staff. It mm -hmm. might be more organizational factors right. for that service that are having an impact kind of higher up. Because I thought it was also interesting that you found that newer staff were more likely to report. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And yeah, so, they're more likely to whistleblow, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which, 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 which is interesting. Yeah, but I think it's the organizational factors that, you know, I think that's kind of where we need to be looking more in terms of what we do to okay. prevent this and detect it in terms of, you know, there are things that can be easily, you know, you know, things like services. Um, if we're thinking about external monitoring and, you know, CQC inspections and how we detect abuse, there are things that can be picked up, um, such as kind of high staff turnover mm. or kind of poor you know inappropriate leadership or weak leader weak leadership poor supervision and um, records things like that mm. um lack of staff training mm -hmm. um, these are things that you can really should quite you know easily be able to detect mm -hmm. um and they you know kind of a lack of collaboration with community services and kind of a lack of communication with external people um these are things that yeah are indicators that you know the culture within a service might not be um, mm -hmm. optimal for, you know, a, a caring environment. Yeah. And that reminds me now a lot of what uh, Chris Bigby work was talking about. She does do all sort of work around group home culture and sort of the, 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 sort of the characteristics of really good group homes and the characteristics of really poorly run group homes. And I imagine it's those poorly run group homes where, you know, uh, abuse practices are, are, are much more likely able to happen there was one heading which i didn't read under but i thought i was hoping you could elaborate on and it was around some some tools to kind of help detect abuse and whatnot what what, what were those that, that sounds interesting yeah so this was one of the main aims of doing this review because we wanted to see actually how you know we all aim to detect and prevent abuse but how are we actually doing that in practice mm. like what you know how are the are the ways we're doing that evidence-based mm -hmm. Or are we just sending people into services hoping that they'll be able to detect these things? Mm. Um, and essentially, we found that actually the tools that we've got to detect and prevent abuse aren't 
you know, they're not very well researched. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the tools we use are around surveillance, um, and that's something that um, is mm. quite questionable in yeah. terms of the use of CCTV in these types sure. of services and how we use CCTV. And that's kind of an, a whole other debate. Um, I'm currently writing an article on the use of CCTV oh, in, cool. in forensic services, yeah, um, which has come out of this review, actually, because, um, you know, there's real, there is some push to use CCTV in terms of monitoring for abuse. And I think sometimes um, family carers might advocate for that. Um, but there are several, you know, ethical implications of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the research tells us that actually we we aim to kind of use CCTV as a way to prevent abuse. Um, and it's been used in that form or to, you know, create a sense of security and safety within these services, mm. but there's not evidence to support that. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm. actually we don't know if it, if that does, um, if it does prevent abuse, um, it could also be used as a way to kind of be more abusive in services. If, you know, we're invading people's privacy, and not getting their consent, especially in kind of bedrooms and, yeah. um, yeah, the use of it there. And if we're not using it in bedrooms, then actually, it, you know, the bedrooms are just an environment where abuse will happen because it's there isn't that um, prevention. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so that was that was quite interesting in terms of the tool and the kind of benefits and risks of using it, using CCTV as a tool. Um, but kind of more effective, I think, was in terms of thinking about how we um, assess the culture of the service um and what tools we use you know thinking more about people external going into a service mm. what tools can we develop to you and use to kind of assess the culture of a service and that might just you know might not you know create um yes abuse is, is happening and kind of create a firm conclusion but it might be something we can use to kind of raise flags um and you know, put measures in place for further monitoring and right. kind of more investigative work. Right. So essentially, this particular program, according to our tool, um, has a lot of these risk factors in place. And so we don't know if abuse is happening, but it's much more likely it's happening here than this other place where the protective factors are in place, that kind of idea. Yeah. And, you know, it's, services might go years without being um, investigated. Mm-hmm. And if if professionals you know lots of people should be going in and out of these services there should be advocacy services going in and out social workers mm-hmm. you know external visitors um mm-hmm. there should be people interacting with professionals you know seeing the service day to day so um if we can kind of get those sorts of people more aware yeah. of the factors around group home culture yeah. um and what that should and shouldn't you know the indicators of kind of a poor culture yes. um that might yeah lead to you know, kind of a portfolio of evidence totally. that we that can then be used. Where where maybe more, you know, you know, uh, the Care Quality Commission might then look to visit that service more often um, and not leave it so long, for example. Right. I really like the resources are limited. Totally, and I really like the idea of unannounced visits. Um, yeah, and I think I think that's big. Uh, something I've had a lot of experience with is uh, accreditation over here and there's a lot of our you know uh, uh, intellectual disability services need to be accredited in order to maintain their funding um, and uh, we have i think there's there's several sort of major accrediting bodies um uh, out here that um uh, and some are international um but the problem with them is they're planned 
So we know that on June 3rd, 4th, and 5th, the surveyors will be here. And so we put a, we put a whole, and, and, and we were doing this in the group homes I was in. Okay. Make sure the house is clean. You know, make sure the files are, 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 are correct. Make sure the money's numbers are correct. Essentially make sure everything looks really good for the surveyors, you know, for these three days. And once they leave, we don't care what you do again, you know? Yeah. And you know, that was a problem in Winterborn View and in Walton Hall, whereby, you know, service the more challenging service users that were perhaps you know being restrictive were being abused were um kind of yeah were were the yeah that would be seen as um, more difficult service users mm-hmm. were being given community leave on the days that inspections were happening wow. so that they would be interviewed um so yeah this this was part of the problem that actually on paper when it's or when inspectors went in it appeared that everything was fine yeah. because. Uh, you know, people were given leave or staff members were changed, like the rotor was changed so that the disgruntled staff wouldn't be interviewed. Yeah. Um, or they were directed to, you know, the people that would give them the information that would make the service look better. Um, yeah. So it's how do you avoid that? And even with, un- there's talk uh, kind of of unannounced, because even if they're unannounced, it would be like a Monday to Friday, mm-hmm. um, you know, nine till five. But actually, could could visits take place in the evenings or at weekends when, you know, maybe start, there isn't so much, you know, the multidisciplinary team might not be in at weekends. So there's kind of less mm-hmm. supervision generally within a service. So mm-hmm. um, what can be done to kind yeah. of, yeah. yeah that's, that, that's a big one for sure. Mm-hmm. Really cool. And it's lack of time as well. People, you know, you mm-hmm. they inspectors only have so much time to go yeah. to a service. It might be that, you know, they've, they've got one morning to decide the quality of the service so it's totally, yeah totally, it's tricky really tricky. and they might not have knowledge or training in intellectual disabilities either mm. so we found that that was quite mm. um quite hmm. a difficulty in that you know they didn't have the communication skills to be able to interview the service users and that actually or you know have access to communication aids or know how to use those right so you know service users weren't being interviewed when yep. you know had they been interviewed they might have been able to kind of share that they weren't happy within the service. Yeah. Or at least they'd be able to find out that even the service users aren't being taught to communicate or given any sort of tools yeah. to communicate uh, through that. Yeah. Really interesting. Well, I, I won't dig into that one anymore. It's, it's a really good article. And I'll, like I said, I'll put the link to it. it. It's got a whole lot of really valuable kind of risk factors across, like I said, across staff, across organization, across um, service users, um, um, and then it's got the protective factors across all those uh, all those areas. So things you can really kind of look at doing to sort of prevent those things. It's a really nice detailed kind of list of, uh, of, of, of things you can look at and address. But I know, Josie, you, you do have uh, another appointment coming up in about 45 or so minutes. So I really want to get to uh the other the other area that that I, I kind of first kind of uh, found you for. And that's that's fire setting. Um, so I have very little experience um, in this area. Um, you know, I, I shared with you earlier that I am, I am a firefighter. Um, so I definitely have an interest in that in that regard and kind of, you know, from that lens of sort of, you know, learning about how to, you know, do preventative education in the community and whatnot around around this. Um, you know, I, I don't know that, you know, folks even know this is a thing. I mean, we hear about in the news, you know, about arson. Uh, and I, I think arson is sort of the, 
the the term for the crime is that right mm -hmm. versus sort of the behavior so the crime of sort of burning something so if if i go if i go into the in, into you know my backyard and and spend the whole day burning cardboard um you know i may enjoy burning and i may be you know into fire setting but i'm not committing arson i'm not committing a crime um you know because i'm just burning cardboard in my backyard um you know if it's sets my house on fire there's another problem but um 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 and so i think that there that's sort of the the difference what 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 is i mean it seems like a a silly question to ask but is there sort of a definition of fire setting yeah, so fire setting um, is used instead of arson for several reasons. Mm. So um, if we talk about people with arson, we're talking about people that have got a conviction for having set a fire. Mm -hmm. um, and not everyone who sets a fire or who, you know, destroys, pro even if it's um, destroying property through fire setting, they might not have been convicted for it. Mm. And particularly when we're thinking about people with intellectual disabilities, mm -hmm. it might be seen as challenging behaviour rather than um, a an offence they might not receive a conviction for all sorts of reasons that mm. we know you know it's difficult to convict right. people with intellectual disabilities so um but also people who have a conviction for um arson um some people who have you know who, who have been who have done arson might not have been convicted for arson they mm -hmm. you know if they've done it to harm someone or to commit murder for example mm. that carries a much larger sentence of course um they would have been convicted for murder right but so, um, yeah, if we're thinking about re within you know, research and trying to explore this area, that's why we use fire setting, because it encompasses people that set fires that have and haven't got a conviction. Mm. It includes people who set fires to property, to land, to themselves or to other people. Um, mm. It includes people with pyromania, so who have a diagnosed impulse control disorder related to fire setting. Mm. Um, so it kind of encompasses everyone, really, um, regardless of, you know, status of conviction. Mm. So fire setting is kind of that umbrella term um, to fit yeah. all those things. And sorry, just just quickly, you, you just touched on the compulsive thing. What, pyromania, so what is that? So pyromania is an impulse control disorder. Mm. So it's a diagnosis um, mm. that is within the diagnostic um, manual, the DSM-5. Um, but actually, few people have that diagnosis of mm. pyromania. Um, it could be as little as one percent, um, oh, wow. or le or less than one percent of people who set fires. So, um, although some people do have you know, do have kind of an impulsive urge to set fires, um, mm. that's not the majority of people who set fires. Oh, interesting. And see, and and again, being completely uneducated in this area, I would have looped fire setting, arson, and pyromania as all meaning the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really interesting. So okay. So. Are there are there lots of different ways that kind of fire setting kind of presents itself? Yeah, so basically what so from the research that I've done, I wanted to learn more about people with intellectual disabilities. Yes. So we know, you know, there's been actually quite a vast amount of research done on fire setting. Okay. Um, but most of it's been done with on people without intellectual disabilities right. or autistic people. Um, it's been done on kind of men within the prison service or mm. within psychiatric settings. Okay. Um and ultimately, we've got kind of a theoretical understanding of people who set fires. We've got treatments for people who set fires, okay. and we've got assessing. We've got ways of assessing assessing people. Right. But we basically didn't know if any of this applies to people with intellectual disabilities. 
Um, so my research kind of looked at exploring what are the similarities and differences between these individuals. Are they different or mm. can we just use all that stuff with, pe- with people with intellectual disabilities or right. autistic people? Um, and, you know, do, do in, in people with intellectual disabilities or autistic people, do they set fires? Is it mm. something that they're engaging in? Um, so my research found that it is something that people with intellectual disabilities and autistic people do. Mm. Um, it's a, it's a minority of individuals, but, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a behavior that has quite devastating consequences. Mm -hmm. So, um, despite it being quite a small population, um, it's an important area because it can lead to quite drastic, um, outcomes. Mm. Um, and, that they they are so there are some similarities so a lot of kind of early experiences um demographic features um you know aggression impulsivity these are factors that are quite consistent across groups but there there were some key differences um for people with intellectual disabilities and that was around um fire so they were less interested in setting fire because they you know identified with fire were really interested in fire mm. um it was more they were motivated much more mm. because they wanted to express how they were feeling and they wanted more support or they wanted something to change mm. so it was kind of a it was a tool for them mm. um to kind of achieve an outcome that they were looking for so um yeah, which was really interesting because it, it, it kind of indicated that fire wasn't really the issue. It was much more, um, you needed to kind of take a much more holistic approach. Yeah. And that's important when we think about assessment and treatment because totally. if fire setting isn't the main drive, then, you know, it's important not to solely focus on that. Yeah, and I think that would resonate really well with the behavior analysts in the audience because we're really talking about behavior function here. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, generally we have some, you know, in our, as behavior analysts, we have a lot of really interesting behaviors that folks engage in, you know, aggression, self-injury, um, elopement, uh, property destruction, which, you know, seems similar to fire setting in some ways, um, uh, as well as, you know, some more sort of, um, how should we put it, uh, behaviors that really grab grab someone's attention really quickly. So severe self-injury, number one. Um, but then things like fecal smearing and that sort of thing, you know, quite quickly can 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 uh, can uh, you know get their attention. So it sounds to me like there may be more situations here where it's it's not actually these you know folks with intellectual disabilities are 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 you know sitting in their bedrooms dreaming of uh, of flames and 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 all that sort of thing. And it's more um, they've either you know through happenstance or whatever discovered that um, you know. If maybe maybe one day they accidentally lit a, lit something on fire, lit a match, and a Kleenex went on fire and it set fire to the couch, and and it completely changed the game in terms of the attention they got from you know their caregivers and whatnot, and then now that became sort of you know for, forget aggression, uh, I can just get a matchbook out. It's a lot lot less effort. Um, you know, certainly a lot. You know, I, I think self injury. Obviously, there, there's there's a lot of theories around self injury, but certainly self injury is 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 probably not um, you know. Uh, a comfortable uh you know experience for the for the for the individual whereas you know striking a match or flicking a lighter would be a really easy easy way to get a big bang for your buck as it the second secret word is fire yeah and there's there's different elements to it so in terms of that a lot of you know, people with intellectual disabilities or autistic people are often supported. Um, you know, they might be living in supported accommodation yep. or they'll have family carers around. So 
um, actually the consequences of setting the fire, they often didn't really understand because that intervention was quite quick. Mm -hmm. um, and like you say, it got people's attention very mm -hmm. quickly mm -hmm. and it was, it's very dramatic um, and people intervene quickly. Mm -hmm. So um, they, they, show, they actually showed a real lack of understanding around kind of the severity of the, their actions. Mm -hmm. um, there were some individuals, um, they got the kind of less, you know, more of a minority, but there were some that had a circumcised interest in fire. Um, but it wasn't fire specifically. It was maybe, it, you know, it was fire, fire paraphernalia or it was the mm. emergency services. Mm -hmm. um, so they were really interested yes, when the course. fire brigade came mm -hmm. out or, you know, in the uniform. Yep. Um, so it was, that was their motivation um, or the sensory experience. So, you know, the, watching the flames mm -hmm. or feeling the heat, mm -hmm. um, which is different to fire interest because... Yes. Um, it comes from a different place. The sensory side of things, there's another fellow that, that I supported um, who um, is a wonderful young man, uh, but he, uh, he had such a, a autistic fellow, he had a, such a fascination with fire. And I remember distinctively, it's still in, embedded in my head, this one day we went on an outing and I, I, drove, a little, I, was, I drove a little mini school bus and, and uh, he, was in the, he was in the back of the bus we pulled out, we, we were drove, we drove by, we were driving down this road and we could see some flames in the distance. We pulled over and stopped and we saw this car was completely engulfed in flames. Fortunately, there was nobody in there. It looked like it was just maybe a, a you know, a, a bomb, or not something set fire to it through gas on it or whatever. His face went up to the, the window of the bus and just went, he was just in absolute awe and joy watching this flame. Um, you know, he wasn't, he didn't set fires or anything, but I, I can see that sort of sensory component really, really kind of kind of playing a role there too. That's really interesting. Yeah, and it's it's important when we think about people's motivations yes. because if, if it's if it's more around communication and expressing how they're feeling, that's yep. something that we can intervene quite quickly. If, yes. you know, it, it doesn't need to escalate to exactly. kind of fire setting behavior. There are interventions that we can put in place beforehand um, to kind of address address those needs really mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so and you, you you put a lot of papers out on this and i know you got a lot more coming out and uh and look forward to those um one in particular a couple in particular that you put out um you put one out that's called um uh something about a development of a scale called the adapted fire setting assessment scale which i think sounds like a really cool tool um and 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 that was built off another study that you did was called uh, a preliminary fire setting offense chain for adults with intellectual disabilities and other development disabilities. So it, essentially it sounds like in these studies, you, you kind of were looking at that motivation piece and also looking at maybe sort of, again, potentially risk factors or, or, or sort of, um, you know, behaviors or circumstances that might lead up to someone, um, you know, moving to fire setting. Cause it seems to me like once you start fire setting, um, you know, that obviously opens up the doors for like so many restrictive practices and so many other sort of, you know, really intensive, uh, invasive kind of interventions, uh, which, of course, folks don't want to do. But again, you know, the, the, there's the obvious uh, uh, safety safety issues there. And so, I, I you know, I, it sounds... It sounds... It, it, sound, it makes a lot of sense. And again, from that sort of behavioralic perspective, we know when we're working with severe challenging behavior, you know, we often try to address it with 
we often try to address the precursor behavior, so the things that lead up to it. So if we know an individual maybe grunts and groans before he, you know, starts, you know, engaging in physical aggression, then we're going to try and provide an intervention at the grunting and groaning, you know, versus at the physical aggression, because that's going to be a lot safer for everyone involved. So what, so it sounds like you, 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 you may have found some things. So, so how did you do these studies? How were you able to figure out sort of what led up to sort of fire setting for folks? Yeah. So, um, so for the, so initially I did a, a systematic review on all, everything we knew about the, from the literature about fire setting for people with intellectual disability. Yeah. And that was interesting because hmm. that I, I found like a hundred, it was a hundred studies that I found wow. that included people with intellectual disabilities. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Which is a lot. Yeah. So you'd think that we'd know a lot, <laughs> but actually <laughs> we know very little because, hmm. you know, these people had been included within much broader groups of fire setters and the differences between the groups hadn't been kind of deciphered. Um, they'd just kind of been included mm. amongst the much larger group. Mm. So um, I went on to, I, I, I interviewed um, 30, only 13 actually, partly because of COVID, um, adults with intellectual disabilities and mm. autistic mm -hmm. individuals mm. who had set a fire. Um, and I know some people would say, why did you include both groups within your analysis? And mm. there are pros and cons to that mm. um, because there are quite substantial differences between those with intellectual disabilities and autistic People who set yes. fires not in an ideal world, I would like to have kind of recruited enough for both groups right. to kind of look at look at that separately. Um, but I tried to just kind of tease out the differences between the groups in my analysis. But essentially, I interviewed 13 individuals um, and basically got them to tell me what had happened in their lives from kind of childhood all the way through to the point of setting the fire. Wow. Um, and that was interesting because differences kind of... Became apparent throughout their life, and things that that you know were, would be important for us to kind of know in terms of where we can assess people and how we can intervene earlier. Mm. Um, so, people without um, intellectual disabilities tend to set fires. Uh, they tend to have quite a broad uh, criminal offending history. Mm. Quite versatile. Might have been involved in kind of violence, property damage, um, aggression before. But actually, people who with intellectual disabilities actually didn't have that kind of versatile long history of offending mm -hmm. um it might have been their first offense um or they might have been reported for kind of challenging behaviors mm. but never really been involved in the criminal justice system so that was quite interesting um but also their kind of lifestyle could be quite antisocial in terms of they didn't really have any kind of structure or right. it, you know no kind of volunteering work or employment mm. um their accommodation was pretty unstable. They moved around a lot um, throughout their life. We're in kind of social services, foster care, um, and yeah, lots of different placements um, from childhood through to adulthood. Mm -hmm. And we're quite socially excluded, actually. So within, you know, an educational establishment, often mm -hmm. they were excluded from school. Um, but also within, you know, the community, they might have been excluded from um, services quite a lot or excluded from the community because mm -hmm. of their... Um, you know, intellectual disability yep. um, or kind of poor communication skills, social skills, difficulties. Um, and there were real difficulties with relationships um, from early childhood all the way through to adulthood. Um, quite, you know, poor attachment styles with parents. Um, often experiencing bereavement as well was quite, um, quite mm. common for this individual. 
Interestingly, um, I found that quite a few um, had parents or a relative that was a firefighter. Interesting. So that was really interesting, yeah. And I think that kind of stems from kind of social learning theory um, and, yeah, kind of having that role model and um, obviously um, seeing someone use fire as a as a positive, um, you know, having that in their life and kind mm. of, yeah, taking elements of that um, and using it in a, in a negative way as, a, as an adult. So, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. That is interesting. And I, and I can... Mm. I can pipe in and relate to this one a little bit being a firefighter i don't have children myself and maybe maybe that's a good thing <laughs> after after this conversation but um um it, it it's true i mean i i do and i could see like a firefighter at home having these kinds of conversations where you know obviously we we our, our concern is most for the people and, and their safety and, and 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 protecting folks and protecting their homes but at the same time, and I've seen, and I I see this myself, and I see this in a lot of the kind of firefighter sort of social media groups I'm in. You know, firefighters are really fascinated by super big fires and big explosions mm-hmm. and big flames, and 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 you know, and you know, and and there there's there's an adrenaline rush and thrill to be able to kind of get that close to that heat and uh, and put that fire out. And I could certainly see, you know, a context where you know, these are common discussions and you've got an individual with intellectual disabilities who maybe potentially takes things quite literally or, you know, doesn't understand sort of all the nuanced pieces. And they're like, huh, my dad thinks fire is really cool. I should think fire is really cool. So I could totally see that connection happening now that you say it, but I would not have put that together. The third secret word is offender. Yeah, and I think we need to understand it a bit more because I think it's interesting because there's that perspective, but there's also the perspective of wanting to be the hero and setting a fire and then extinguishing it as ah, well. Ah, very good, um, yes. Which is a different take on it. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think, yeah, it's difficult for us to know how, yeah, how that that did impact. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't say, but yeah, for yeah, sure. in, interesting. So, and I, and I won't get you to list them all, but uh, again, the 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 article. Uh, uh, the article on the uh, the actual adapted fire setting assessment scale. Uh, so you come up with um, it looks like uh, forty one items on the scale. So I'm certainly not going to get you to list them all, but I'll, you know I'll just I'll just read a couple of them um, that I thought were kind of interesting. So uh, things like uh, you know fire is very important to me. I need fire in my life. I must have fire in my life. Uh, uh, you know. Uh, I like watching fires get bigger. I think these are the ones that sort of, you know, most of us who don't know much about this would make the assumption, you know, uh, yeah, they're there. That, that sounds more like that kind of, you know, obsession kind of sort of uh, perspective. But then look at some of these other ones, like um, 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 uh, people often set fires when they're angry. Most people carry a lighter with them. Um, they should teach you how to stop fires at school. Um, uh, the police talked to lots of people about setting fires. I know how to stop a fire. Uh, we already mentioned, I'd like to be a firefighter, uh, seeing a firefighter put their uniform on. Um, so again, we talk about, you know, your point about the emergency services and the fire break, watching a, I like watching a fire engine come down the road. I'm like, uh, you know, there's a lot of these sorts of watching people run from a fire. 
uh, and then you know, certainly some more uh, a few violent ones like watching a person with their clothes on fire, um, 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 uh, and then you know, and then maybe more kind of you know seemingly tamer ones like watching a fire burn in the fireplace or watching a campfire. I mean, I, I know I love staring at the flames of a campfire. I could get going to trance anytime. So I, I presume that this is a scale that, that you, you know, you've obviously come up with some sort of, um, uh, and I haven't totally read through the article, but some sort of scoring protocol. So just because I have a lighter in my pocket doesn't mean I need to be treated for fire setting. Um, was, how, how does it, how does it kind of work? Yeah, so the scale um, the scale looks at several factors. Mm. So it looks at fire interest, so how interested someone is in fire, mm. and, at, and at the point at which that becomes problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks at how, whether someone identifies with fire, and what I mean by that is, is it kind of part of who they, do they see it as part of who they are, so kind right. of integral to their personality? Um and whether, you know, it looks at normalization of fire. So do they think it's quite normal to, you know, be around fire quite a lot to yep. set fires, to see, yeah, to see kind of things on fire. Is that quite normal for the individual? Um, and it looks also at um, fire safety awareness. So kind mm. of having knowledge of fire safety. Mm. So those are those are kind of the factors that the four factors that the scale is looking at. I see. Um, so um, people... So we, I basically gave the scale to people who um, had set a fire with intellectual disability and people that had committed an offence, but it wasn't related to fire setting. Mm. So we can kind of determine whether the questions um, can differentiate between those two groups. So were gotcha. people's scores um, higher? So people, what I basically found was people's scores were higher if they'd set a fire, okay. which suggests that you know these questions do determine whether someone is at risk of fire setting right. um, in terms of the fire-related factors. But obviously, we've talked about lots of other factors that are relevant to fire setting. So this is kind of one element of an assessment that you might do with an individual. Right. If someone isn't interested in fire at all, and they set it because they wanted to move accommodation, they didn't want to be in their prison cell, for example, mm. then you probably wouldn't, you might not necessarily use this scale because it might right. not be helpful. Right, right, right. Right. So essentially, and again, and and, and and I'm sure if I had read, read the whole thing, I would have put it together that basically it, uh, like a lot of assessments, uh, it, it, the items are broken into different categories and then sort of scored and weighted and whatnot. And, and from there you can get, get sort of get different, uh, different levels of risk, I guess. Yeah. So that's the ultimate aim. So at the moment we we're basing it on the four factor fire scale, which mm. was developed by Okada in two thousand fifteen, mm. and I've adapted that. So oh, I see. Um. So the so because the research was done during COVID, mm. um. I my original target was to recruit kind of two hundred plus people. Mm-hmm. Um. Unfortunately, I was only able to recruit uh, fifty nine individuals. Right. So um. The plan is to do another pilot study, kind of post COVID. Gotcha. Um. And yeah, share this with a lot more individuals to kind of get enough data to be able to do just that and right, kind of create, right. um, yeah, some meaningful cutoff scores potentially. Cool. So uh, before we get into kind of uh, the treatment side of things, um, is this an assessment that's available? Like, can folks yeah. access this and use this? Um, 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and if you can't, you can email it to me, and I'm happy to share it. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's it's accessible. You know, there are limits to it in terms of its validity. Mm. Um, and we know it's got um, test free test reliability, but there is more kind of empirical research that needs to be done with it. So sure. it's, it has a simple, but it's also grounded in the previous research. Right. So, um, yeah, it has it. Yeah. It does have its limits, so it it needs to be used kind of with that in mind. Yep. But it's definitely something that services are using yeah, yeah. because the current measures for people, um, you know, they don't have official aids. The right. language is quite confusing, yeah. um, and you know that's I've certainly used the other measures for people with intellectual disability, and it the items don't make sense to some individuals. Right, um, right. So it's 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 a it's a step in the right direction. I think. Gotcha. Does it tend to be? I mean, obviously, folks need to be able to answer these questions. So, are there examples of, of folks with more severe intellectual disabilities fire setting as well? But you know, obviously, you couldn't ask these questions of. Yeah. So the majority of the participants, I would probably say, are kind of mild intellectual disabilities yeah. that this was used yeah. with, or autistic individual. Um, but yeah, people with more severe learning disabilities might find it too still too complex mm. um, and need it adapting further. And I think within the research more broadly, we need to be thinking kind of more creatively about mm. how we can assess these things. And it's you know a questionnaire isn't always the best way to do that. Um, and yeah, thinking about other assessment methods like um, you know looking at someone's physical reactions um, to situations. Um, you know, using open questions. Yeah in an interview style so um yeah there are there are other methods of assessment as well which i think we could be more kind of creative about thinking about you know using technology a lot more to do assessments as well cool cool now kind of getting into treatment um because obviously we want to try to do something about this once we assess that piece um as you said there's a there, there there's a dearth of research on fire setting in sort of Folks without intellectual disabilities or, or not autistic and whatnot, um, and uh, and there are treatment programs in place. And there's one in particular that you re- referred to, which was called the FIPMO. So, what is the FIPMO, and 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 how did you you know how does it work, and then how did you kind of adapt it for folks with intellectual disabilities, and did it work? So the the FITMO is the fire setting intervention program for people with a mental disorder. Okay. Um, there's also the FIP as well, which is the fire setting intervention program for prisoners. Mm. Um, so these two programs have been developed by um, Teresa Gannon and colleagues, um, and Nicola Tyler and colleagues. Um, they've kind of developed these fire setting intervention programs, mm. and they are continuing to evaluate them. Um, so within services for people with intellectual disabilities. There isn't. There hasn't been a great deal of research done in terms of treatment. Um, so, you know, the options are to use the FITMO for people with mental disorders. Um, potentially, that has some applicability. Mm-hmm. Um, there is another program that's been developed um, by Taylor et al. Um, and but that hasn't been uh, for people with intellectual disabilities specifically. Mm. But it hasn't been more. It hasn't been kind of sufficiently evaluated mm. in terms of a large population right. or in terms of a randomized control trial. Um, so basically there isn't kind of a reliably valid um, and effective treatment out there for people mm. with intellectual disabilities 
arguably clinicians have the skills to adapt materials um, to suit this population. But we know from the wider literature around other offences, so I'm thinking predominantly sexual offending, where a lot of research has been done, um, we have adapted sex offender treatment programmes. Um, we wouldn't pick up a manual for someone with an intellectual disability and just use that. So if, we use, if we're doing that for sex offending, why aren't we doing it for fire setting? Mm. Um, and if we're thinking about some of the differences that my research has highlighted in terms of the two populations, um, people with intellectual disabilities, we need to be taking a more um, kind of multidisciplinary systemic approach um, and possibly also a more trauma-informed approach because of mm. the kind of histories of some of the, yes. some of the perpetrators. Um, so I think it, it might not be, I think a, an adapted fire setting intervention program would be useful. Mm. Um, it's something that I would like to do kind of going forwards and, and evaluate. Um, I know services are adapting their own versions of programs and running kind of in-house programs. Um, but, you know, we don't know if they're effective. So right. we need some, we need some, you know, robust research on that. Um, but also being mindful, actually, of the other factors that are important for people with intellectual disabilities and not getting into this trap of, you know, someone's got to do a biosetting intervention programme because that was their behaviour. Mm. Um, you know, when thinking back to around, around kind of PBS, thinking about what was the function of that behaviour, yeah. like what, is it relevant to put them on a programme that actually, you know, it wasn't the biosetting that was the issue, really. Fair it enough. was yeah. much broader. So um, I think for some individuals, an adaptive version of a fire setting treatment programme would be useful, certainly. And I think there's hopefully that's something that um, we can look to develop. But at the moment, we don't really have an effective treatment programme. Oh, okay. But we know that's effective. Oh, I it see. Might, the FITMO, yeah, the FITMO might be effective, but we haven't evaluated it with people with oh, learning disabilities. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Uh, so the FITMO right now is just being used with folks with without the Yeah, I, the it might well be being used with with folks with intellectual disabilities. Right. Um, but w there's no evidence to suggest that. Right. What it works. what what is the that program essentially like? What does that involve? So um, it involves looking at people's motivations for their fire setting. Yep. Um, thinking about their triggers for why they set the fire, um, it is it focuses a lot on cognitions and kind of changing cognitions. Thinking about um, kind of offence supportive beliefs. So if people think, you know, no one is harmed when I set a fire, um, then they're more likely to set a fire. Whereas actually, if you think kind of thinking about victim empathy and thinking about who is affected by the fire mm. and the impact kind of getting people to kind of reflect on that yeah, a little yeah. bit um but also thinking about if they've got mental health issues as well how that's impacted on their fire setting right so one thing that didn't get integrated into my scale which i think would be important due to kind of comorbidities um being quite high in people with intellectual disabilities is around kind of mental health and things like you know auditory visual hallucinations um, if they've had an impact on the fire setting, you know, what are the kind of early warning signs mm. where people can kind of, yeah, recognise when they're at risk of, um, of ris uh, yeah, risky behaviour, basically. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds kind of a bit like a kind of a, a CBT kind of model, like a cognitive behavior yeah. therapy kind of thing, you know, and yeah. working with your thoughts and trying to change your sort of thinking patterns so you'll change your behaviour and whatnot. 
Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, and and we have seen some evidence, certainly, that CBT in and of itself is helpful for for folks that are autistic and, and have intellectual disabilities. But I hear you. There's there's. I really like your point that okay, Bob set a fire. We shouldn't just put him in the fitmo, you know, uh, because there are so many. I really like the idea of uh, you know, and it's complex and it, it's going to take a lot of a lot of research and. Like, I'm glad you're young um, to, to do this research um, uh, because um, you know because you're you're right there there's a there's just so many different angles you can come at this from from a preventive standpoint like does it have anything to do with fire does it have more to do with childhood trauma does it have more to do with this or more to do with that and so yeah it's definitely not a, a one size fit all kind of cookie cutter approach um, uh, that, that that's going to solve this problem it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. And it's really important when we're thinking back to being kind of least restrictive, because often people in services that have a history of fire setting get stuck because it's such a risky behaviour. Yes. Community services don't want to take the risk. Yes. Um, and it's about understanding that behaviour um, yeah. and, you know, not have not not the not a treatment programme becoming a barrier to discharge. Um, you know, often services are low resourced and it might be that they can't offer a certain treatment mm -hmm. group. Um, but other things can be done to address the, the treatment needs. And it, yeah, it's, yeah, it won't always necessarily be a fence type program. It's, tr it's a troublesome thing when, you know, you have sort of, you know, one sort of you know, bad episode on your file, the one day, you, you know, <laughs> and maybe the fire was completely accidental, who knows, but, um, yeah. um, uh, and that, then now locks you into these uh, almost literally into these you know kind of forensic psychiatric services and you never get out um uh you know which can be a struggle and, and imagine there's probably scenarios too where you know i mean i think we see this for other behaviors certainly where folks get into sort of forensic services for one thing and then engage in new challenging behaviors in the forensic services because of all of those sort of you know positive behavior support related pieces aren't in place you know and good environment good relationships you know um you know good oversight all those sorts of things um just sheer boredom um um and they start engaging in new challenging behaviors and i wouldn't be surprised if there's probably examples of folks that maybe started fire setting in the forensic hospital you know in some way yeah sure <clears throat> uh, certainly someone certainly one of the participants that i interviewed that was exactly the case they mm. set a fire because they knew that if they did that they would be moved accommodation mm -hmm. and that's they were getting bullied and no one was listening to them mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. and they they set the fire and it worked mm -hmm. and then you have that kind of issue of reinforcement that okay it's worked this time mm -hmm. you know it kind of then encourages that behavior Absolutely. because yeah yeah that's the, yeah. the simple laws of behavior to the behavior scientists out there that was that uh, that one attempt was so strongly reinforced that um why would you try any other method to sort of you know achieve your means really fascinating you know i i wasn't sure that um uh and, and it wasn't a goal but i i i i sort of thought this conversation wouldn't really relate as much to sort of uh behavior analysis and the work that behavior analysts are doing but the entire conversation did like i i really think there's going to be a lot of value specifically for the behavior analysts but also for some other folks and you know who knows maybe some of these folks will uh be reaching out to you and your colleagues to maybe do some collaboration on that end because I, I, I imagine I imagine it's a thing that 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 uh, 
you know, behavior analysts run into and have no idea kind of what to do about it. So really cool. Um, just to, before we kind of wrap up, you did mention you were kind of doing some other research. I know you, it sounds like you and probably many researchers that do sort of, you know, uh, research with human subjects um, are, are kind of redoing studies that they tried to do during COVID that didn't go so well or weren't able to do, or like you said, could only get a few participants and now we got to get a lot more. So I imagine you're probably doing some of that. But what other kinds of things do you kind of have, you know, on the docket that you're working on as far as sort of um, uh, in, in new work or, 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 or sort of reinforcing the, the work you're already doing? Yeah, so um, something that I'm working on at the moment is, as I said, um, around the use of CCTV in, right. in services um, and the kind of legal implications and ethical implications of that. Mm-hmm. Um, something else I'm looking to do is think about how um, volunteer police cadets um, are um, supporting autistic uh, young people, mm. So, which is quite interesting, um, a little bit different. Um, and kind of looking at the perspectives of autistic cadets, uh, their family carers, and then the cadet leaders, and how best they can be supported, um, and why they want, why they're interested in becoming involved in the police cadets as well. Mm. So yeah, that's quite interesting. Um, something else I'm looking at is um, related to burnout in staff within services, um, and how staff can, yeah, how how um, we're measuring burnout and what. What that looks like in terms of um, challenging behaviour and whether staff who work with people with challenging behaviour are more burnt out than staff who don't. Absolutely, um, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's quite interesting as well. Oh, really cool, really cool. Well, Josie, I, I, this was such a fascinating conversation. I learned so much today about stuff that I had assumptions on that were have, you've, you've clearly erased and... Uh, just changed my whole thinking about, uh, you know, uh, fire setting, you know, certainly about abuse, um, you know, uh, just the concept of kind of what happens in these sort of forensic settings. Just really, really neat research that you're doing and uh, and, and, uh, and and definitely going to keep following what you're doing. And maybe we'll have you back again when you've uh, done some of the bigger studies and uh, we can talk some more about it. Yeah, definitely. I'm also, I, one thing I should mention mm. is that I'm working with Professor Glynis Murphy on um, an evaluation of a sex offender treatment program ah. for people with learning disabilities. So that's really um, going to be a really important study as yes. well. Yes, we're definitely um, going to have you back to talk about that one. I think that would be really interesting. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks again for being yes. on the show, Josie. So awesome. It's been great talking with you. Thank you. Wonderful.